Uh, all right. We are uh, back on stage for the second part of our Crowley discussion. Crowley. Crowley, yeah. I won last time, remember? You know, Ozzy Osbourne, I believe, does pronounce it Crowley. And Ozzy, he knows things. That metal implement in your hands will definitely cause me trouble as I edit this. Did you say metal? (laughs) But I need a fidget spinner spinner or something. So, uh, Brianna's been here for 30 seconds and already... (laughs) She just handed it back to me. (laughs) Sorry. In the last episode of this discussion on Alistair, uh, we talked about the first half of his life and how he got to his major occult and religious revelation the book of the law today (laughs) sorry i feel like i need it i like how you said alistair to avoid yeah i'm just tired of this conflict today we're going to talk about how crowley came to live according to the book and what exactly that meant now there are two sides to today's discussion the first is an exploration of the occult rites and phenomena that Crowley conjured, including a demon in the deserts of Algiers. Pretty cool. The second is the crazy lifestyle Crowley came to live. Um, And sort of as a postscript, we're going to talk about um, Crowley's ability to influence other subsequent religious traditions like Wicca and Scientology. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So we want to ask two questions about Crowley. First, can we call his brand of occultism the way he practiced it black magic? Was there an element of evil to the work? And second, did it cause his life to spiral out of control? In asking that second question, we're not even going to necessarily assume that his life did spiral out of control. That's for us to sort of figure out. All right. That's it. I've introduced him. We're oh, back. Okay. Here we are. My name is Rob. You sound relieved. <laughs> <laughs> was. The Whoa, intro is the tensest part. My name is Dr. Rob Thompson. I am a professor of occult arts Thanks. and sciences. It changes a little bit every time. <laughs> I know. I like to have fun with what I am. Um, <laughs> that was very profound. Oh, y'all. Right? Yeah. It's what, it's what it means to be alive. Uh, I'm here with... Uh, I'm the Supreme Hierophant. That's my official title in the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors. My doctoring of occultism is uh, an outside pursuit, outside the podcast. Uh, Olivia Literal is across from me here, our Grandmaster. Hey, that's me. And sitting next to her is our Human of the Third Knob, her sister Brianna. I feel like I should be called the Metal Detector. (gasps) (laughs) That's that the knob is made of metal. But <laughs> how will we know if she's, she's not, not informed? I'm the detector of metal. Uh, <laughs> recent initiate John is going to be joining us to do our brief history today. You'll be the metal detector. John Cook. Uh, uh, Shannon Landers, uh, newly, newly, uh, what are we, what is this? She's not crowned. She's uh, uh, bestowed. Newly bestowed. <laughs> so dangerous. Oh, no. Inquisitor. <laughs> The what? What inquisitor? Oh, the inquisitor. I was. I thought it was the lizard inquisitor. No, no, we tried all those. Yeah, we tried. I it. only liked inquisitor. We chose one, and you said no. Yep. <laughs> lizard inquisitor is for behind closed. That's doors. my prerogative as the supreme hierophant. <laughs> it's, it's my nickname. Uh, yeah. but we, I, uh, <laughs> yes, I believe. Let's get to the pledge, and lizard then we'll uh, we'll do the the business meeting. <gasps> 
We, the members of the secret order of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. All right, we have a few points of business for today's... Jacob's back here shaking his head. He's like, not today. I'm not doing it. Well, uh, speaking of Jacob, uh, so Jacob has been doing uh, Alistair Crowley's voice for us, and we're going to invite him into the discussion circle uh, just for a moment here because uh, it's time to bestow a title on Jacob. (gasps) Wow. (laughs) Yes. Oh, so Jacob apparently is fully responsible for express, expressing any glee about this or enthusiasm. Yep, I'm the only one excited. We no guessed. one else seems to, oh, yeah. well, they guessed. I was an audible guess. Sounded more like you I'm were sorry. afraid of it. It was more of like why? It was more like <laughs> wonder and mystery. Yeah, Jacob, I I have thought long and hard about this. Um, yep. and I I've I've actually come to a conclusion here. This is not going to be up for debate or democratic process here. <laughs> what what uh, even matter? I have the perfect title for you. I think that you are going to need to be a knight of our order. Ooh. Um, and we have no knights as of yet. Uh, so That uh, is my favorite time of day. Or is it's not really day, is I'm it? I'm going to you didn't mean time did you i always mean time okay mm-hmm. so what just happened <laughs> what kind of knight is he he is a knight a knight or a knight of the dangling serpent Ooh. <laughs> yeah. how Can the I serpent say... dangles oh i am <laughs> i am well versed. you just go e-rated yes i'm well versed in i don't know that we have i think dangle. We... <laughs> i was about to say something probably inappropriate so i just don't said, we don't we generally though why hold back i mean i was gonna make a dick joke but well most that's of the point my, that's... The, the whole title is a dick joke so oh. uh <laughs> we would like to offer some words of thanks to llama lumps yet again llama lumps llama lumps llama lumps <laughs> that's my new song for llama lumps. joined our joyful family of patrons uh and uh we've we're so pleased to have uh, llama lumps in in the family there mm. Uh, and uh, we got, got a picture of Llama Lump's dog we could see. Well, wait, there. what? There's a dog? Uh, yes, yeah, uh, Llama Lump's has got the, uh, that's his, what do you call it? Uh, I'm making a circle with my hands <laughs> here. Everyone's I, trying I, to peer through I'm not going to tell you because I kind of like seeing it's you his, struggle. It's his little yeah. avatar. It's You know how you get the little picture? His picture avatar. is his dog. Oh Yeah. Anyway, so thank you, Llama Lump's. Uh, and Shannon, any, any business from the Instagrams you want to report? Uh, yes, actually. So we, one of our fans, Hayden, messaged us on Instagram. With, you sure she's a fan? So well, does she? <laughs> well, I guess I'm assuming. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, no, see, at the end of the comment, she says, big fan of your podcast. Oh, oh, peace good. and love, peace sign emoji, hands holding emoji, unicorn and rainbow flag. I don't, you have to translate that for me. Oh, I'll, um, again? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that was the translation. Yes, yes, the emojis. I'm out in the dark. You don't know, Rob. You gotta get caught up with the emojis. Anyway, so she's a fan. Peace and love, I get. Yes, peace, love, love and unicorns. What does she have to say? Okay. (laughs) Well, she made up a point that um, not only that she agreed with the idea that um, magic is art. Which is what we said. We did say that on the last podcast. We had a bit of a discussion about that. Yeah, but she says she agreed with it, but not only that, but she believes that science is an art as well. To quote her, she says, science equals magic equals art. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so I think I've, I've mentioned Keith Thomas before. Uh, he made the argument, it's an argument that I pretty well buy, that um, 
it's not so much that magic is like primitive technology, right? That, you know, it's like we developed this technology and we didn't need magic anymore. It's that as a culture, our mindset shifted. So we stopped believing in the imminence of the supernatural in this world. And that is what sort of led to this culture of there being uh, opportunities to reemphasize science and to develop these sort of technologies that we have today. So it's not that technology replaced magic. Um, it's that the culture shifted. But along that same line, magic and science have sort of gone hand in hand. Isaac Newton practiced both alchemy and was the co-discoverer of calculus and developed the laws of motion and all these sorts of, of things. Um, so there's this sort of confluence between science and magic. So I, I absolutely agree. Uh, science uh, is, in a certain sense, still like magic, like art, a product of the culture and an effort to reach out and understand. Um, and I think what she's getting at here, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Shannon, uh, is that there are no truly certain objective truths, that all of it is processed through us as subjective cultural beings. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, like, that's what it's, Am from I what now I talking gathered, in emojis yeah. to you? Does it, I, I this only, all sound like... I only speak in emojis. Praying hands, unicorn horn? Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, I believe I challenged you last episode, Shannon, to come up with uh, some themes for for potential fan art on the Instagram. <gasps> Ooh, yes. So fan art, I think we sh it should. Um, yes. What, did, what, <laughs> what, what? What were you thinking? As far as that fan art is concerned, what what can folks draw for us? Maybe they can. Uh, we're going to be talking about a desert ritual that Crowley does today. Maybe they can draw. Give us a drawing of Churanzan, the the dweller of the uh, of the threshold. Oh yes, but with corgis. Okay, so anything they would like to incorporate corgis into, we're we're open to. Uh, so yes, any any of Alistair magic. Crowley's rituals that they would like to illustrate, with uh, perhaps Olivia involved, and a <laughs> corgi. Alistair Crowley as a corgi. There you go. I'm interested corgi in Crowley. any of those images. <laughs> Very nice. Mm, uh, nice. So I do want to make a, uh, just a, on the Patreon issue, I'll, I'll come back to my, my area here. Uh, we are planning to post some new bonus content. So on Patreon, if you become our patron for a dollar a month or more, uh, you get access to all of our bonus content, which includes uh, outtakes, but also bonus interviews and uh, sort of mini episodes. And a little secret surprise soon. Oh, and a secret surprise is coming yes. that we'll be talking Ooh. about later. Brianna! <laughs> <laughs> monster later in the month i'm sorry everything's a dick joke to me so uh delightful what, what fun today so uh, <laughs> we're going to uh <laughs> we're going to be posting an additional poe story start uh either over the weekend or, or early in the week next week so um we encourage you to go on and just become a patron only a dollar a month that's all it takes but if you're feeling up to two bucks, like uh, llama lumps, or even up to five, we would be most grateful. It keeps us going. It takes us about 40 hours to produce these episodes uh, between editing and researching and writing and recording. And there's a lot of man hours that go into all that stuff. <laughs> man hours? Human hours. <laughs> Serpent hours. What? It's a thing. That's a, man it's hours? a phrase. It's a man hours? Man out. I'm a man. Like Man. It doesn't sound like anyway. what I think you mean it to be. I'm closing up this business meeting. <laughs> business adjourned. <laughs>
I'm so confused. I'm I know. Sorry. I don't. I don't know what the joke was on the man I... hours. Crowley's wife Rose gave birth to the girl who she had been pregnant with when Crowley arrived at the Book of the Law in Cairo. They named her Nuit Ma Ahathor Hecate Sappho Jezebel Lilith. Literally, I got the wrong name. That should have been my That's... name. That's going to probably be my children's name. But little Nuit Ma Ahathor Hecate Sappho Jezebel Lilith was not long for this world. So you might want to think about that. She died of typhoid on a return trip from China to England. Well, shit, okay. Mine won't die from that. You're, you're, you're going to have the exact same name, though? I feel like you're tempting fate. Or are you going to no, have, no, like, rearrange it a little bit? Oh, you could name seven children. All, each each of them. I already told Ryan if we safer. have a, a daughter, her name will be Lilith, and he can't change that. <laughs> will it be Nuitma, Ahathor, Hecate, Sappho, Jezebel, Lilith? Now it will be. Well, Sappho was nice, too. Mm. At, at the time that his child died, which was a sad thing, and we're sort of glossing over the sadness of this. Oh. I'm Crowley sad. had been in Asia. Um, hmm to uh, climb Kanchenjunga, the third highest mountain in the world, standing between Nepal and India. And this was the source of the greatest controversy surrounding his mountain climbing life. His fellow climbers confronted Crowley over his treatment of their porters, which they thought was unnecessarily cruel. Crowley had been leading the party, and the argument caused all but one climber to decide to give up and turn back. But on the way down... And still more or less within view of Crowley, an avalanche triggered up the mountain, burying all of them. Huh? One by one, they dug themselves out. Oh, wow, that's metal. But they couldn't retrieve one of the climbers or any of the porters. That's less metal. They called up to Crowley for help. The climber who had been with him ran down to assist them, but Crowley himself wouldn't come. The next day, he hiked down past them as they dug to recover the corpses and continued into Darjeeling. I mean, at least got those corpses. He did not, though. Someone he was did. He was giant middle finger to all of them the whole time. Wait, so what happened? There was I an mean... avalanche and... So Crowley was being a dick to the porters. And they were like, Crowley, you're being a dick. And he was like, screw you guys. And they were like, we're not climbing with you anymore. We're going home. So on their way down the mountain, an avalanche buried them. But they hadn't gotten very far, so Crowley could still see them. And his friend, who stayed with him, sprinted down to help them. And Crowley just watched. And then, as they were trying to dig out the corpses, he just walked past them. That Jeez, sounds like him. Yeah. I still love him, though. Pretty it's metal, but stuff. not in a good way. Back at home, Rose bore a second daughter, Lola Zaza. Ooh, <laughs> I like that one, too. About that one, yeah. It's a short, though. Lola Zaza. <laughs> but their marriage was entering its twilight phase. Rose had become an alcoholic and subsequently went insane. Okay, that type of twilight face. Yes. <laughs> I was Not a romantic not twilight. Not a sexy twilight. No sexy twilight. <laughs> Crowley is often blamed for Rose's insanity since, as we'll find out, Rose wasn't the only one of his wives to go insane. 
But we have to remember that Rose herself was a wild child long before Crowley came around, sleeping with married men and faking pregnancies to get abortion money. <laughs> that having been said, Crowley may or may not have been in the habit of hanging her upside down by the heels in the wardrobe when he had company over. In like a kinky way or? Yeah, in like a I'm sticking you in the closet while my friends are here way, but upside down upside by the down? heels. Is it going to get kinky later? So, <laughs> where is the kink factor? This is the thing about Curly that uh, you know we're going to be dancing around today. That's a ridiculous way to treat a human being, to hang them yeah. upside down by yeah. the heels and yeah. just begs for a comedy in a certain sense. Yeah. But it's also a horribly abusive way to treat a woman. Do we know he did this for certain? We don't. Exactly. Um, however, <laughs> it stands to reason from a man who walked by corpses buried under snow of people who were alive and knew him just minutes before. Maybe also, he had somewhere to be. That's such Maybe a he had a meeting, he was running late. Like, the closet thing is just so Very ridiculous. Important. Like... Why? I feel like it has to be a thing. We'll be sort of negotiating, I think, between Crowley as a kind of holy fool and Crowley as a legitimate menace. We'll see what we come down on here. Crowley formed the Order of the Silver Star, styling himself Master, and started to adopt disciples who funded his travel as his fortune was spending out. I'm a master. Yeah, I was about to say, is that what we're doing? Kind of, yeah. But I, yeah. Nice. But I'm your hierophant. But if so I just was, have to get rid of you. If there like was, he did with the Golden Dawn. <laughs> if there was ever an avalanche, I, I, I would probably help you guys. Thanks. Oh. Yeah. The first <laughs> of his disciples was Lord Tankerville. That's amazing. That's why didn't I get that name? And he accused because that this guy already had it. And he oh. accused Crowley of being too condescending and one. just quit and gave up. Huh. The second was the poet Victor Neuberg, featured in and he featured in the second most significant significant occult event in Crowley's life, which was the journey into the Algiers desert in 1909. Uh, so we'll tell that story now. Nice. In 1909, the two men set out for Algiers by rail, and then trekked into the North African desert on foot. Crowley could speak some Arabic, and knew Muslim culture well enough to get by. He made Neuberg shave his head, except at the temples, where he styled his hair like two horns, making Neuberg into his little demon familiar, to enhance Crowley's eminence, in the eyes of the Algerians. This is my this. favorite story, this by is the way. Beautiful. How? Like I've done to you today, Shannon. Well, I can barely put my hair up in a bun. Like, I don't know how to make it look like... <laughs> you gotta hard. shave it off. That's yeah, you're that's, right. Yeah. <laughs> Hold me back. <laughs> I have red hair. It would look kind of cool as horns. Like, yeah, we should really much. get on that. I'm if we get enough Patreon. Oh, there you go. You heard it here. If we get, get enough Patreon, I will shave Shannon's head. If we Except get on that horns. Patreon, we will give Shannon Neuberg horns. As Crowley and Neuberg traveled deeper into the desert, um, they encountered a, a series of powerful beings who revealed the secrets of their world to Crowley in particular in symbolic form, but to Neuberg sort of by extension. Crowley concluded this journey at Busada. Busada. 
Pusada. A town situated in an oasis in the middle of this desert. From this base of operations, he would conduct the most challenging and terrifying of his occult journeys. After two nights sleeping in the desert, it occurred to Crowley that he should resume the work he had begun in Mexico nine years before. He would find a secluded spot, speak a ritual invocation, and stare into a piece of topaz until he astrally projected into an encounter with the ethers. It's my birthstone. Nice. We're meant to be together. The formula for contacting ethers had been recorded by the Renaissance mage John Dee 300 years earlier, and Dee described a hierarchy of 31 of these. Crowley had contacted the first few in Mexico and now began working his way through the list in the deserts of Algiers. So That's sort of a like a lot of work, I feel like. Yeah. And I guess the ethers are pretty cool about taking a nine year break. They were like, No, you don't have to start <laughs> yeah, over. Fine. You just you pick just... up where you left off. Yeah. We'll finish this later. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're on your time. Yep. At the fifteenth ether, he was admitted into a secret order of adepts. At the fourteenth, so we're counting down. Oh, from thirty-one. Oh, okay. okay, so we're not. So at the four, so we went from so we went from thirty-one. That was the first one. Oh, so he's like halfway through. We're counting down to one. Yeah, okay. at the fourteenth ether, a black angel appeared with a star on his forehead, wreathed that's... in darkness. Whoa, that's my. That's what I want as a spirit guide. <laughs> I feel like we need a ringtone of Brianna doing her metal sound. <laughs> what if I had yes. one? <laughs> yes. We'll put that on Patreon. The earth shook, the wind howled, and the beasts cried out in the distance, says Crowley. This is so metal. Lights stirred in the darkness. The angel told Crowley to depart. He could not be invoked in sunlight. The secrets he had to reveal to Crowley could only be shared under cover of night. He should climb the mountain Dale Adin, erect an altar, and await the angel there. We accordingly took loose rocks and built a great circle, inscribed with the words of power, and in the midst we erected an altar, and there I sacrificed myself. The fire of the all-seeing sun smote down upon the altar, consuming utterly every particle of my personality. I am obliged to write an hieroglyph of this matter, because it concerns things of which it is unlawful to speak openly under penalty of the most dreadful punishment. But I may say that the essence of the matter was that I had hitherto clung to certain conceptions of conduct which, while perfectly proper from the standpoint of my human nature, were impertinent to initiation. I could not cross the abyss till I had torn them out of my heart. So when he says that he sacrificed himself, what exactly does that what does that mean? What's that entail? <clears throat> Alright, so you know what this entails. Yeah, I do. You but, know where we're but going. But I with want this. to talk about this more. <laughs> this is my favorite part. Alright, Crowley is vague about the exact nature of his sacrifice. But occultism scholar Alex Owen says that he allowed himself to be penetrated by Neuberg in service of the god Pan. Mm, yeah. That's right. So, I mean, it makes sense. Neuberg had been temporarily possessed by Pan in order to perform the He's act Pan. of penetration. It, it makes sense, Pan. Yeah. So, Pan, so, well, go ahead, Brianna. Go fill, fill, fill us in on Pan and his panness. He's rough. 
He's, well, oh, so, wow. so he's, he's, he's sexy goat man. He is. Yeah. He's got goat goat legs and goat horns and human parts. It's not necessarily a good sexy ghost man. Some ghost, goat, goat, goat man. Man. I said ghost on so And like, he goes around banging all the nymphs of the forest. And some things. Wiccans have taken him up as their like horned god. Yeah. Oh, okay. They'll use Pan instead. It makes sense. So yeah. He, so he felt like he had... He had to have this to happen to him in I order mean, to like had to have it happen. Um, Olivia is using air he, quotes. Oh, this is on just a, a podcast. Very, sorry, a very complex story. Remember, the dude was bi. Like, like, I was gonna say, I think he, he might have just wanted to have sex with him. It didn't turn right. out great for the other. Guy. But he did believe that <laughs> oh. sex was an opening onto right. higher planes as well. Yeah, which y'all Wiccans have adopted. A lot of sense, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I, so I, he's he, a kind of a power bottom here. He really is a power bottom. Just, just right. taking one for the team. Well, no, no, he is the no. team. No, he's 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 like right. basically so, like telling. Shannon, you're missing yeah. the power of the power bottom situation. <laughs> Jacob is like dying educate right me. Now. <laughs> All right, Jacob needs to speak explain? as himself. Go ahead. As okay, as the are you res- speaking as Crowley or as yourself? Both. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I see a lot of myself in him. Well, he saw a lot of people. But anyways, yeah. um, so as the resident gay for of this, <laughs> for, the, for the cult, yes, um, a power bottom is someone that they're always willing to 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 be on the bottom, as it says in the name. Okay. Mm, yes. 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 So he wasn't really taking one for the team. He wanted to take it. Yeah, he's, he's he was, running that team. He was taking it for himself. He was like he explained it as if like. He was giving up something that was like yeah, when... to the god. Yeah. Uh, but with Neuberg, he's the power player, but literally. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Exhausted, Crowley went back to Busada and went to bed, uh, and then returned. <laughs> you know, I mean, after all that penetration, <laughs> it's a big what day, else yeah. are you gonna do? And then he returned to the ether at ten minutes to ten. The ether of the black angel. The angel whispered the secrets of the masters to Crowley. And Crowley saw the masters in a vision standing before him, all identical to one another. Crowley's new occult name would be the Instaquisitor. No, it's not. It's Nemo. It's Nemo. That'd be weird, wouldn't it? It caught my attention. Yeah, I bet they woke you up there. It was Nemo. N E M O. Pixar. Alistair Crowley. Finding Crowley. It's just Alistair dog paddling. Yep. Uh, Crowley realized a strange thought. Because Nemo's in water. (laughs) You are late to all of our parties today, Shannon. Shannon. Shannon's still in the abyss. I'm just over here with my my Spider-Man blanket. I'm just relaxing, all right? Crowley uh, realized that he should devote himself to aid humankind in its evolution in the mode of Jupiter by governing and teaching men to aspire to become nobler, holier, worthier, kinglier, kindlier, and more generous. It's a lot of liers, and then just, it <laughs> yeah. ended. Yeah, you had, to, you had to get off the errors. I was expecting yeah, another they, one. A lot of those are up. associated in astrology with Jupiter. But not sounding very black magic at the moment. No. The penetration by Pan, a little black magic yeah. mm, Yes. But I don't now, know. Now I know a, a lot of so. probably <laughs> would be down. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so the 11th Aether instructed him to cross a great abyss, whose power was to dissipate him into dead dust without the protection of his guardian angel. 
dissipate, dissipate into, into dead, dead dust. dust. The alliteration. Yes. Because the pit was presided over by the dweller of the abyss. Uh, this was a figure that came up during our discussion in our very first season. Uh, I was about to say, I was the dweller. Yes, this is Bulwer Lytton's concept in his uh, occult first occult novel, Zanoni. It's a highly influential book, and the concept of the dweller of the abyss really informs a lot of occultism in the 19th century. And Crowley here. So he um, has got to get by this dweller of the abyss, whose name is Choranzon, Choranzon, who was, according to Crowley, really a being of nothing. Same. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) the black formless abyss, right? Of nothingness. Um, So Chorazon was a formless, malignant force constantly striving and failing to take on meaningful being. (laughs) Same. How college students feel right now. I am here to form you into something meaningful. So you must heed me or you will become like Chorazon. Which is also why we need Patreon. (laughs) Yes. Please do not let us become like Chorazon. No, I, I, no, we don't need, we don't need you to... S- Please save us from the no, abyss. No, that is not... <laughs> yes. We are not in the abyss. Crowley is. Neuberg stood in a protective circle and invoked Choronzon in a triangle opposite the circle, giving the demon form by sacrificing the blood of three pigeons to him. Aw. Crowley stood apart in his ceremonial robe with the hood drawn over his face. The demon took many forms, including Crowley himself, a woman Neuberg loved, and a serpent, and tried to tempt Neuberg out of his protective circle. Kicking sand and distracting Neuberg with his raving, the demon managed to break a hole in the circle and attacked Neuberg. Neuberg invoked God and stabbed at the demon with a magical dagger, causing him to stagger back to his triangle. Did you say he invoked God? Neuberg did, yeah. Like, God, God. God, God. God. Was Crowley, like... What the... Well, I'll tell you what Crowley was doing in a moment. Hmm. But first, back to the drama of Neuberg and the demon wrestling in the desert. (laughs) The demon finally took the form of a woman that Neuberg loved, raging and seducing. These visions all belong to Neuberg himself. Uh, So it's possible that this happened. It's possible it was all in Neuberg's head. For his part, Crowley remained in trance. Wait for it. Seated inside the triangle where the demon Chironzone had been manifesting. At last, all the energy latent in the blood of the pigeons was exhausted by the successive phantoms, so that it was no longer able to give form to the forces evoked. The triangle was empty. During all this time, I had astrally identified myself with Chironzone, so that I experienced each anguish, each rage, each despair, each insane outburst. My ordeal ended as the last form faded. I'm so upset about those pigeons, though. <laughs> I'm still, uh... You didn't think pigeons had to die for this? It's just sad. Shannon. You know? Right, the whole human sacrifice thing. <laughs> it's okay. Just, <laughs> it's okay. Sometimes, the pigeons are better off. Sometimes they're better. They're in a better place. <laughs> better place. Being sacrificed. Pigeon heaven? Sure. Um, okay. I'm, if I'm that makes you feel that. better, yeah. yeah. Sure. Sure, Shannon. This note about Crowley astrally identifying with Chironzone gives away a secret that Crowley does not come out with in the confessions. According to Alex Owen, Crowley actually stood inside the triangle, the space where the demon manifested, risking obsession by the infernal non-being. 
The whole encounter lasted about two hours. This confrontation, beyond any other that Crowley and Neuberg experienced with the ethers in the desert, would stay with and haunt both men for the rest of their lives. But it also brought Crowley a new kind of understanding, which came to him as he worked his way through the final ethers on the other side of the abyss. I understood that sorrow had no substance, that only my ignorance and lack of intelligence had made me imagine the existence of evil. As soon as I had destroyed my personality, as soon as I had expelled my ego, the universe which to it was indeed a frightful and fatal force, fraught with every form of fear, was so only in relation to this idea, I, so long as I am I, all else must seem hostile. Let's uh, interrogate this notion of Crowley as wicked. I was sort of hinting at this uh, a moment ago. And a practitioner of wicked deeds. Is he a black magician? He determines here, at the height of his occult power, in the depths of his one of his most profound occult visions, and a formative moment for his career, that evil doesn't exist. We could say that Crowley had deluded or deceived himself to give himself a pass to perform evil deeds, but Crowley isn't alone in asserting that there is at bottom no such thing as evil. The visionary nun St. Julian of Norwich came to the same conclusion after a prolonged illness led to a vision of Jesus in the medieval period. So if things aren't evil, then what do they... Ex how do they explain bad things? Or are they saying... Well, then you get into the odysseys and trying guess, to explain how evil exists. So it's just saying that like evil doesn't exist. It's just like... So just Jacob, kind of made it up. Jacob Bohm, for example, uh, the sort of proto-theosophists believe that good and evil were just opposite sides of the same divine power. Mm. So that evil is not this oppositional force, it's just part of the same thing. Yeah. American spiritualists, who I know and love, have argued since the 19th century that evil is just what they call good evolving. So in other words, it's a sort of unformed ethical state. Uh, with, and the focus of a spiritualist is to rehabilitate rather than condemn what we might call a lost soul. So, oh, I feel that. Yeah, no, I yeah, huh. I agree with that. Do you of. see what I mean, Shannon? Yeah, so it's Shannon. not that things aren't, that people don't do bad things. Some things are bad. But that doesn't mean that there is such thing as pure evil. Okay. A lot of people in Wicca, like New Age Wicca, say that there's no white or, like, there's no white or black magic. Magic is just magic. So... It's kind of, I guess, yeah. an easier way of thinking of it. And the reincarnationist religions all sort of tend in this direction, that mm -hmm. we're in this evolutionary state from bad to good or low to high rather than evil and good. Like, they don't come into play. Yeah. So it's just, there's lower and higher impulses. It's not, like, yeah. it's not categorized in different groups. It's just the same thing, just... Well, you kind of... Well, uh, what we would call evil is really lower, Lower it's just a, It's like a spectrum. Yeah. Okay. In, in Norse, it's it's a very heavy thing where there's not really, there's not an evil. It's like, it's the spectrum of things that you can do and it's not seen as bad or good. It's just yeah, lower, higher on it. We strive for higher acts and to be higher people. Okay. For Crowley, evil doesn't exist uh, because we're all fundamentally connected. That's his logic here. So-called evil things are not out to get us. They are joined with us, and like the demon Shoranzon, who Crowley merged with in the desert, are part of assisting us along on our journey to spiritual fulfillment. 
The scholar Alex Owen makes a parallel between Crowley's experience with the demon and immersing his self, with a capital S, in the unconscious. So he sort of submerges himself into his own unconsciousness. His conscious ego fights to maintain its separateness, but is ultimately subsumed and dissolved in the desert. It's possible that Crowley was lost here, that the demon overwhelmed him. He reached the pinnacle of his career as a magician and went mad. His life became increasingly chaotic after this experience. His rituals became self-consciously depraved, and he struggled to keep his head above water financially. This, in theory, in Owen's theory, was the moment when Crowley lost control of the unconscious forces that had helped him to develop his practice and write the Book of the Law. It was no longer a productive force that he could access for his own ends, but rather the unconscious came to dominate him, running and arguably ruining his life. Real scared of that happening. Say two hours, <laughs> two hours deep in that type of energy. Yeah, you're bound to it get some sort of fun. lost. No, it's really hard to keep yourself after that. Let me try another take on this. Um, I think it's possible that Crowley's sense that there is no evil force opposing or undermining him could be an illusion conjured by the demon itself, when in fact the demon has taken over his life. I mean, this is sort of what Owen is suggesting. Mm. It makes us think of the classic line from The Usual Suspects. So you guys I, know this movie, The Usual Suspects, with Kevin Spacey? I know of it. Yeah. Kaiser so. Sose. Okay, well, this line originally comes from Baudelaire. It's la plus belle des russes de diable et de Devil. vous persuader qu'il n'existe pas. La plus belle. Yeah. <laughs> it means... Nice job, Olivia. I'm really excited about that. <laughs> Diablo. The greatest trick the devil, uh, the devil ever pulled was persuading you that he doesn't exist. Oh, mm. I see that quote all the time. Yeah. yeah. The, mm. the usual suspects really popularized it. Huh. So he was saying, so the devil was taking over Crowley, was taking control of his body? So he's saying that that demon basically was making Crowley think the way he was about evil in order to have further control over Crowley, yeah. correct? If you don't believe in Satan or the devil, then the devil is one. Mm -hmm. Because you will do the devil's deeds not knowing that the devil is controlling you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's hold this up against Crowley's own view on what it means to be a responsible magician. Magicians forget that to dare must be backed by to will and to know. All three being ruled by to keep silence, which last means many things, but most of all so to control oneself that every act is done noiselessly. All disturbance means clumsiness or blundering. The image of Crowley confidently sitting in the triangle suggests a daring act. His meditative silence throughout seems to illustrate that he had control throughout the ritual. Crowley warns that magic, which he spells with a K, invites obsession by every deceitful demon. Wait, wait, why does he spell with a K? Did he just decide he liked it better that it's way? It's like an older thing. Mm -hmm. okay. Some people, there are yeah. still people out there, like different practices, that if you do not spell magic with a K, will lose their damn minds. Yeah. This is a serious thing. It's like how we you spell theater, R-E or E-R. Yeah. This is some, only specialists get upset about this. Yeah. Like okay. People will lose their minds. Yeah. Yeah. Crowley warns that magic with a K invites obsession by every deceitful demon. By puffing up the fool's pride and making him think himself a god. Mm. It is such cases that keep me constantly on my guard against being too proud to fight, 
or to sweep the floor if it comes to that, he says. Mm. So we have to keep ourselves humble, really. This is not sounding like crazy, arrogant magician man, is it? No. We have to keep ourselves humble or we will be, uh, become servants of the demon. Crowley describes being utterly exhausted by this experience and almost unable to continue working his way through the ethers because of the unsupportable strain the work put on him. Crowley was often arrogant and acted as if he were divinely inspired, especially with his disciples. But in the days after his desert ritual, as we've observed, when he received this re revelation about the non-existence of evil, he was certainly feeling very far from godlike. He was weak, he was worn down, and he was struggling to complete this occult exercise. Judging Crowley on his own terms, he wasn't deceived or destroyed by the demon. Given all that we know of his life up to this point, it's likely that the increasingly repulsive and incendiary natures of his rituals was just Crowley being Crowley. And his spending can be chalked up to his tendency to live a playboy's expensive lifestyle, which he'd been doing up to that point and had no reason to stop. Mm. So did he go mad or didn't he? If Crowley was a little mad after the desert, he could have just as easily been a little mad before. For Alex Owen, this is the moment when Crowley truly embraced the Book of the Law and became the Beast. The Book of the Law speaks of Crowley in the third person as the Beast and says that he doesn't understand its contents. After crossing the abyss, Crowley's separate identities, personal, magical, and prophetic, merged into one, and he embraced the socially disruptive, norm-breaking demanded by Horace in his Great Revelation. In 1910, he began experimenting with mescaline. As you do sometimes you know, in your life. What is that? It's coming. John's going to tell you all about it. Ooh. He developed his third and final great occult adventure, The Rites of Eleusis. These were performed once a week on Wednesdays at Caxton Hall for a paying audience and celebrated uh, one per night an occult progression of planets. So the first time it was Saturn, then Jupiter, then Mars, the Sun, Venus, Mercury, finally the Moon. Leaving out Neptune, I guess, and Uranus, and poor old Pluto. <laughs> you guys are... Kindergartners. It's because Jacob laughed that I laughed. Uranus. Uranus. Ew. Can you not? Can we stop? In this? preparation. Oh, his new mistress, Lilia, uh, Lila Waddell, accompanied these drug fueled explorations of spiritual ecstasy on the violin. New Scarlet Woman. She just played the violin. New Scarlet Woman, yeah. Well, because Rose. Out with the old. She's out, yeah. yeah. In preparation for the rites, Crowley performed a rite of Artemis at the office of the Equinox in London. Writing for the sketch, Raymond Radcliffe described the scene. The room was dark. Only a dull red light shone upon an altar. Various young men, picturesquely clad in robes of white, red, or black, stood at different points around the room. Some held swords. The incense made a haze through which I saw a small white statue illuminated by a tiny lamp hung high on the cornice. A cup of brownish liquid was passed around at these uh, public events. Brownish, brownish liquid? <laughs> it no, it's not. It's not. <laughs> we had no other way no. to describe that. What would it be? Mescaline. Gravy. <laughs> Neuberg was there to perform and warned his friends not to drink too much of it. Oh. Okay, it contained, Brianna, fruit juice, alcohol, mescaline, and either morphine or heroin. Was this the equivalent of, like, jungle juice back in the day? Yeah, this is it. This is your jungle juice. <laughs> wow. Morphine, heroin, and mescaline. <laughs> I was just say, that Also, a little bit of pear juice. Yeah. Just a 
little bit of juice just, just to keep that nutritional value. Yes. At the turn of the century, uh, drugs were fashionable and taken by artists and intellectuals for a variety of reasons, but they quickly came to be associated with thrill-seeking among the lower classes, and consequently, they got less cool. I, yeah. For Crowley, <laughs> if the pores are doing it, it's not cool anymore. For Crowley, drugs not only made magical encounters with otherworldly forces. What's going on with you? Because you're like hand signing. Jacob was just like that. Was that's me? Oh, he's <laughs> hanging out with. Yeah, that's you. You you don't like the pores. You don't want to do the same drugs they're you doing. You heard it here, listeners. For Crowley, Jacob hates poor people, <laughs> especially their drugs too. For he's playing Crowley. He's in character. For is Crowley, he? he is. He is. For Crowley. Drugs not only made magical encounters with otherworldly forces easier to come by, but they also allowed for repeatable mystical experiences, which rendered a kind of scientific approach to the supernatural. For Mathers, good old Mathers from the Golden Dawn, Mathers. and many members of the Golden Dawn, spiritual training and technique were the only valid means of achieving altered states of consciousness, and drugs were a lazy and dangerous shortcut to be avoided. That's interesting, considering they used drugs for so like hundreds of years yeah. to do but not not matters he says you got to make that journey on your own that's too much work that's a lot Qu of work don't get lazy crowley uh, only the only the working man and woman can enter the can occult get it well safely man you know safely, wait till you hear right. what happens to this dude you you, you know where we're going with uh. this crowley understood that drugs could cause a dulling of the will and undermine the user but he believed that he could master them for their ability to manipulate consciousness. Stimulants like cocaine to sharpen. Does anyone ever master cocaine? Like what? <laughs> cocaine masters you. As to say. Oh, but depressants like opium to soften. Also masters you. And hallucinogens like good old mescaline to explore supernatural visions. Now, yes, is the time to find out. What mescaline is? I was about to say, Thank you, I because still don't know. Let's invite John Cook into the circle. John, come on over. Hello. And Hello. Please actually... give us our brief history of mescaline. All right, here's a, a brief history of mescaline. Oh, wow. As, as ordered. As yes. promised. Yes. <laughs> yes. One brief history coming right up. Mescaline was derived from peyote, the buttons of the cactus used in Native American rituals. The use of peyote and religious rituals goes back as far as 5,700 years among the Hucules in Mexico. The Navajos began using peyote more recently when it was introduced through contact with other tribes. Yeah, so people are always like, oh, them Navajos, they did the peyote, but really, it, came, it was a much older tradition that they just sort of adopted. The round buttons on top of the San Pedro cactus are carefully cut to keep the rest of the plant from rotting. Yeah, it's a sort of sustainable way of harvesting your oh. your buttons. You don't have to kill the whole plant. Oh, that's really nice. Then they, the buttons, are chewed or brewed in tea. The bitter taste is nauseating, but induces a hallucinogenic effect. Yeah, you, you purge a heck of a lot when you take the mescaline. So it just tastes so bad that it makes you like... No, the, the drug itself makes you physically ill. Okay. I feel yeah. like I would not want to be throwing up while tripping balls. Yeah, no. But, but you would be. <laughs> that, that sounds awful. Like the worst. Careless over-harvesting in the last several decades have landed the San Pedro cactus on the endangered species list in South Texas. When Crowley first began experimenting with the drug in the first decade of the 20th century, it was known as an... An, uh... Anticipation. Anilonium? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds Luminae. good. Yeah. Okay. What's that? 
<laughs> when Crowley first began experimenting... <laughs> I'm going to... There's a narrow brief history to explain what happened. <laughs> well, they, he's about to tell you. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, John. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> All right. Uh, when Crowley first began experimenting with the drug in the first decade of the 20th century, it was known as Anilonium Lewini, after Lewis Lewin, the what German a name. pharmacologist. <laughs> Let's just pause for Lewis for a second there. Louis Lewin. He has this, it's the exact same name, but with one letter changed at the end. <laughs> Louis Lewin. Parents. Yeah. I bet they're just all Lewises. Yes. Like 10 generations I mean, what of else would Lewises you... in the Lewin yeah, family. There's some Lewis. There's some. <laughs> but they each like have a Louis. letter different. They, yeah, they go the by a little. Yeah, they, they're all Lewis, but yeah, they go by Lou, they go by Louis. Yeah. Some are just L. Yeah, let's say what's the The edgy, one? younger, gothy son. <laughs> the, the millennial. Take the, <laughs> the millennial, take yeah. Take off the L, just... <laughs> anyway, who is this guy, John? Uh, Lewin was a German pharmacologist who published the first report on the psychoactive properties of the cactus in 1888. German Arthur Hefter isolated the drug from the cactus in 1897. He compared the effects of peyote and the isolated mescaline by experimenting on himself. Dangerous stuff. Oh, he just threw himself right in yeah. there. Yep. Took okay. it. He's the Jekyll and Hyde of mescaline. <laughs> hmm. Hefter was also responsible for discovering the arsenic deposited in human hair, creating the widely used test for arsenic poisoning. What? We can't just jump from drug trips to arsenic poisoning. Yeah. Like, what? Because that's what he did. He did two things. That's... Two famous but things. But it's like, that was such a wow. weird segue. Hmm. All right, keep going. It's fine. His countryman, Ernst Spath, Ooh, that's a name. synthesized the drug in 1919. Yeah, your synthetic mescaline there. Ugh, it seems bad. And I bet you don't get sick on the synthetic. I don't know, though. I feel like you'd get I feel like you'd still get sick. You'd probably get less sick. Why synthesize it if it's just going to do the exact same thing? It's got to be worse for your body, though, right? Yeah, synthesized drugs are way worse than natural it's drugs. It's non-organic. you got to get that organic whole foods mescaline, you know? <laughs> Yeah, you gotta <laughs> <laughs> get right from the snap. <laughs> anyway, and uh, that's a brief history of mescaline. Very oh, that nice. That was a brief history. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's delightful. I feel like yeah. I learned so much about drugs. You botch it like we do. <laughs> oh, wow. Thanks for that, Bria. <laughs> I included myself. You know, it's not. It's rough. It's not a literal sister. Then again, skill. he didn't have much to botch. Why do we? Yeah, you give us. This like the real. He had to say stuff. and and helonium and. I told give him me how to like... say that. I literally told him and helonium, <laughs> and I whispered it to him. Well, I guess you should have been doing the mescaline. <laughs> I just like don't tell my brain. sister. I'm not she don't do mescaline. You shouldn't do mescaline. I'm not gonna do mescaline. Be very ill. I just like picture Bree like walking up to John, just whispering to him, helonium. <laughs> <laughs> she's been telling him all day. That's what I've been like, doing all day. He has no idea what she's saying. He couldn't figure it out till just now. He figured out why she kept whispering. And holonium to him. Crowley believed. He knows why. Now, Crowley believed that drug addiction was a problem limited to the weak-willed. <laughs> I love that. And that his will was too strong to permit anything like substance abuse. That's the most but Crowley he, thing. He... One while <laughs> while one eighth of a grain of heroin was more than enough. Crowley had developed such a tolerance that he was able to take. Seven or eight grains at a time. Holy hell. That's like 64 times the amount of heroin that should be enough heroin. Man's like a horse. Is, is that a thing? Is there enough heroin? Yes, there's there more than enough. being like, ah, oh, yes, this is the correct amount of heroin? I feel good about how much heroin <laughs> I just did. did. He qu no, we, do, we, are, we here at Cult Confessions are against opioid use of all kinds, especially heroin. 
He quit in 1924, <laughs> but was back on heroin in 1940 until the end of his life. Yeah, that's how that goes. Oh, so he quit for a good, like, 20 years, but... Let's get back to the rites of Eleusis, shall we? Someone sang a bit of opera, and Neuberg danced the dance of Pan until mm. he collapsed on the floor. But where... that was a sight. I was going to say, that had been really hot or really not. But he, he just kept dancing until he fell over. And uh -huh. for the rest of the ceremony, he just laid there. Right where he fell. Like, he danced himself. Anytime dancing is involved. He danced just... himself comatose and then just laid on the floor. I guess that's, that's how you do Desert it. Desert really did a number on Go him. Go big or go home. Crilly spoke a poem in honor of Artemis, and uh, Waddell played her violin so rapturously that many in the crowd, or at least Radcliffe, who was our quote, experienced a form of ecstasy. The rites themselves had a kind of plot involving a man trying to solve the riddle of existence by turning to each of the gods who had been given a night of performance. So one night for Saturn, one night for what a riddle Mercury that would have on and been. on. Wow, that's big, big riddle. That's a lot. Each god. Well, it's the riddle of existence. <laughs> that's, that's a, there is no bigger that's, one. That's rough. Uh, each god is unable to answer the request, as Brie imagines, <sighs> until finally Pan arrives on the last night to tear away the veil of illusion and reveal that no gods are needed. The rule of the law to do what thou wilt is all that's required. Well, it was that easy all along. Each rite, like the proto-ritual to Artemis, involved Waddell's violin, uh, Neuberg's dancing, and the recitation of poetry. Neuberg sometimes danced to the violin, and sometimes to some drumming on a tum-tum. I have the best image in my head right now. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's probably right on. Is, Prominent, it, is a tum-tum a drum? Yeah, it's a little Okay, drum. I was imagining somebody... <laughs> like yeah. On their tum-tum. Tummy-tum. Tummy-tum-tum. Yes. Well, that's her idea for uh, fan art. <laughs> for all it's just to draw Olivia the rights of Eleusis. Drumming on their tummy. But Olivia has to be with them. They're drumming on her Second fan art request. The rights of Eleusis featuring tummy-tum drumming. Yes. Prominent friends included the chemist George Cecil Jones, who we heard about in the last episode, who looked like Jesus, and uh, the Golden Dawn's Mathers also participated. Much of the performances took place in the dark, and the scandal sheets, under the pretense of reviewing the performance, accused Crowley of conducting sex acts during the performance, including <gasps> homosexual acts with Jones. Gotta bring that Ooh. penetration back. But here's the thing about Jones. He was a father of seven, and oh. sued uh, the papers for libel. I mean, was he... Yeah. I'm assuming Crowley was still the power bottom. Probably. I don't think they were doing it. Um, because you're not going to sue if you're... Anyway, these lawsuits made Crowley a household name, actually. So this is what rocketed him to fame, was the, the scandal around whether or not he was banging Cecil Jones during the Rites of Eleusis, mm. which, you know, were open to the public. Enough people testified to Crowley's depravity that Jones actually lost the case. Uh, but it, despite his seven children, but it brought Crowley to the attention of the Ordo Templi Orientis, best known for their practice in sex magic, and Crowley joined up. Mm. Uh, the seven ch I know gay men can have children, but seven, really, like, you like having sex with your wife a lot. Or, I mean, kids back then were used to work, right? You gotta... Yeah, Jacob? <laughs> you got something trapped there? Uh, just turkey basters, that's all that takes. <laughs> I don't know if they were that advanced. They, they, I don't think turkey don't basters were. You get creative. Get over here, Jones. <laughs> Around this time, <laughs> it's only Mrs. Seven Jones. Times. It's like, like minimum 
like having sex with someone seven times. I don't think you have to love it. But that's no, that's a lot of times. Okay, now Shannon, let me tell you about the human menstrual cycle. Yeah, Uh, you're pretty lucky if you only have to do it seven times to make those children. I'm just saying you're really hitting it on the nose every time. You're like hitting the bullseye every time. (laughs) Really hitting it around this anyway. Around this time, I know how the woman body works. But you, you like seven. You think just it just I'm takes just seven. I'm just saying at least seven times. Like you just assume you're been. fertile most of the time. There's only one way to figure this out for sure, guys. We have to conduct an experiment. No, oh, no, no. no. Be a gay man. Although the population is down in the United States. Times, Around right. this time, Crowley filed his canine teeth to sharp points, so that what? he could leave vampiric marks on the young women he often successfully attempted to seduce. That's kind of. Uh, Often? I love it. He, well, he's pretty good at seducing women. But yeah, okay. now he was leaving vampire bites on them. It's kind of hot. He also started uh, defecating on carpets. Ooh, that's I'm, less hot. I'm still in on it. On the belief that all of his bodily functions were sacred. What? <laughs> so, what if I just went around being like, I'm going to take a shit, it's sacred. I don't think it's going to go over well. During the First World War, he moved to America, where he published anti-British propaganda. The British Crowley published anti-British propaganda and made a public display of destroying his passport. Later, he claimed that he had intentionally created absurdly exaggerated materials in favor of the Germans to help the British through their sheer ridiculousness. So in other words, he made pro-German propaganda that was so ridiculous that it actually ended up helping... The pro-war cause. Guess what? This was true. That's a lot of that's a lot of effort. That yes, must, he must have really been forcing that pro-German. In both the first and second world wars, Crowley had direct ties to the British Secret Service. In fact, British Secret Service agent Ian Fleming, best known as the author of the James Bond series, was a friend of Alistair Crowley's. <laughs> wow, that's pretty sick. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so yeah, that was true. He really was an agent for the British. Wow. Making absurd pro-Nazi, not Nazis, we're not at the Nazis yet, but pro-German materials of the First World War. That's wild. While in America, his disciples paid his expenses and he kept a relatively nice studio apartment in Washington Square, New York. One day he announced he would go off into the woods for 40 days and 40 nights. Like... Someone else we know. Several folks we know, yeah. Buddha. Jesus. Who didn't do that, honestly? Right, it's, just, it's the thing to do. His friends raised some money to fund his adventure, and he used it to buy paint and ropes because he was not doing any of the Buddha or Jesus stuff. He was scaling up the side of a mountain to write in red, every man and woman is a star. That is not where I thought that was going at Aww, all. The local beautiful. farmers kept him fed while he was at his work, and he met his third scarlet woman, Leah Hersig, uh, who, ki- who he kissed violently. On their first like, meeting. Like Godfather awkward makeout violently. Okay. Godfather. You know, like the really awkward, like, he's like. I've <laughs> never seen Godfather. Huh? Never seen it. Really? Who's getting the kiss in this scenario? It... The Godfather? He's given a kiss. <laughs> no, it's not the Godfather. It's people in it. He's Kissing not... violently. Oh, I it's think like I know what you're talking the about. The awkward, like, can't. <laughs> anyway, he called Leah his uh, Alostrial. Alostrial. Or the Ape of Toth. What a cute nickname. (laughs) I'm going to get Ryan to start calling me that. The little Ape of Toth. And he had two children by her. A boy, Dionysus. Nice. 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 God of theater. 
alcohol and orgies in the woods. And a girl, Anne Leah. What's going on there? What happened? The wife got to dictate that one. Yeah, she's like, I'm not enough. All your women of name. The first one was Dionysus. This one's name is Anne. After my mother. (laughs) (laughs) They moved to Sicily. Along with a nursemaid, Nanette Shumway, who became another of Crowley's mistresses, of course. He's like a black hole. All women just sort of fall into him. I will I, definitely fall into I was... Crowley's next disciple was Raoul Loveday. And uh, Loveday makes for an interesting episode that blew up all over the tabloids. Loveday had read Crowley and fallen in love with his philosophy. His wife was a model named Betty May, and uh, she went with him to Sicily to study with Crowley. But Betty May hated Crowley. I don't like it, Raoul. I just don't like anything about it. I know you liked his books, but these paintings, creepy demons leering at us from every corner, and these pornographic images. Both men fell ill, and Crowley decided they should sacrifice a cat that had scratched him and offended him. He made the sign of the pentagram over a cat and it became mesmerized, staying in its spot until the time of the sacrifice. No cat would stay. I was gonna say, I wish I could do that and just have my cats not. Just pentagram over <laughs> and, Loki. Yeah, and so he would just stop being a dick. <laughs> Here, kitty, we won't let that nasty man get away with his nasty sacrifice. Could that just work for anyone? Just like put a pentagram over their head and they're just chill now. <laughs> I don't. I wish. Yeah. Even when Betty May tried to, it would make class a lot easier. Yeah, uh, the cat became came right back. So even when Betty May tried tried to move the cat, it came right back to its spot. After two hours of magical invocations, Crowley had Loveday slit the cat's throat and drink its blood to cure his ailment. But instead, Loveday collapsed. Crowley predicted he would die on February 16th, so he was like, okay, drink the blood and you'll be fine. And then he drank it and he fell over and he was like, I mean, you shall die on the 16th of February. <laughs> it was a stray cat's blood. At four o'clock in the afternoon, because everything happens in the afternoon with Crowley. And on the appointed time, at the appointed hour, he did. Even he tried to summon Jura, uh, the demon, right? That dark demon in the, in the afternoon. middle of the day. Yeah, he loves doing stuff in the middle of the day. Yeah. I want you to write that it's all his fault. My Raoul would still be alive today if we hadn't gone to live in that horrible place. There was a photograph that all but predicted it. I should have known. Betty May remembered a picture that had been taken of her and Raoul with the ghostly outline of a young man lingering behind Loveday in the image, and this ghostly figure had its arms outstretched above his head, which was the exact position that Loveday died in. She reported this and all of her adventures at Crowley's villa to the press, and the Italians kicked him out of the country. Someone was bound to do it. Incidentally, I'm pretty sure this was Mussolini, so like the fascist (laughs) dictator threw Crowley out of Italy. That's great. Leah had taken up with one of his disciples, a man named Mud, with two Ds, who had given Crowley all of his money, and Cro- that makes it okay. Yeah. Uh, and Crowley left left them to go to Paris. He was like, okay, fine, because I've got plenty of other women. Leah ended up working as a prostitute and a waiter to make her way. Yikes. Gotta do what you yeah. gotta do. Crowley married another woman, an American secretary named Maria Teresa, who he called the Serpent. 
That's a better name. That's I would much rather be called that. Name. And that's why Jacob had to get his title today. Uh, um, they fought when he took another mistress, the German 19-year-old Hani, whose last name was never recorded. He called her the monster. Okay, also, I would, I would like that. I would yes. <clears throat> Both women ultimately went insane within a couple of years of meeting the Beast. In the midst of these affairs, Crowley left a suicide note at the top of a high cliff outside Berlin called Hell's Mouth. The press got a hold of the suicide note, and it caused a stir with people around the city and throughout Europe gossiping about Crowley's ignominious end. That is, until he showed up at an exhibition of his own paintings a few days later. Nice. Nice. But Crowley wasn't destined to live forever. Uh, He did not have an eternal physical life, and as far as I know, he never claimed to have an eternal physical life. In fact, he died on the 5th of December 1947 in Brighton, England. His funeral service was held at the Brighton Crematorium, where a dozen friends attended. Some of his work, including passages from the Book of the Law, were read aloud at the service, and this prompted the press to label the funeral a black mass. Some popular narratives about Crowley have him dying of drug abuse and madness, but in my opinion, this doesn't quite bear out with a 72-year-old man. Yeah, I think he just... He lived to old age, and while his health was certainly compromised by his frequent drug use, he did not die the tragic death this kind of narrative implies. Wait, did you say they read parts of the Book of the Law? Yeah, at his Doesn't that go against... Yeah. Yeah. But he's dead now. What's he gonna do about it? (laughs) Probably just like... Oh, we know this is for your funeral, but but we're gonna... Okay. Let's talk legacy, shall we? So So we got the life story down. Nice. Rest in peace. Let's get to that legacy. First, he's considered the godfather, speaking of godfathers, of Wicca. I'm taking this story from an article by Ronald Hutton, whose work we've used before on this podcast, specifically in our Pagans episode. Uh, This is actually a follow-up to our Wicca discussion series to episode six. So if you want to know more about Wicca, go ahead and check, check that out. Gerald Gardner. One of Wicca's founders and its foremost promoter met with Crowley on May Day, 1947. The visit had been arranged by the stage magician Arnold Crowther, who was a friend of Gardner's and an admirer of Crowley's. Gardner ended up returning for three more visits through the end of the month. Crowley initiated Gardner into the Ordo Templi Orientis up to the fourth degree. Nice. Allowing him to form his own group, and Gardner bought Crowley's complete works. With the OTO nearly defunct, Gardner would have been essentially reviving the group in England, but Gardner struggled to find enough people interested in joining the OTO. He was very interested in Crowley's ceremonial magic, but not so interested in the law of Thelema. He began writing about a witch religion, the roots of Wicca, and shifted his attention in the direction of what would become Wicca and away from the OTO. Gardner circulated a story that Crowley had been interested in his witch religion and hoped to combine it with the OTO. In 1960, in his autobiography, Gardner added that Crowley, learning of the central role of the priestess in Wicca, had told him that he would not be bossed around by any damn woman, and that he didn't see any financial profit in it. Olivia's rolling her eyes and refusing Mm -hmm. to comment because she's conflicted now. (laughs) Doreen Valiente, he may not have said it, it may have been Gardner's story. Exactly. Doreen Valiente, the first major female figure in the Wicca religion, repeated this story when she said that Crowley had been indoctrinated into the Wiccan religion, but had left because he objected to the dominance of women. 
Gardner claimed that Wicca was an ancient religion passed down by family tradition. So to get Crowley to fit into this story, he said that Crowley had been inside a coven when he was very young. So that if Wicca contained some Crowley-esque material, it wasn't that Crowley had given it to Gardner and Gardner had worked it in, but rather that Crowley had learned it from the Wiccans and that's how it got into all the Crowley stuff, do you see? Mm -hmm. So the Wiccans become first in Gardner's version. The fact that this only came out in 1970 was because it had been passed secretly up to then. In fact, Gardner invented Wicca more or less from whole cloth, and now scholarship has more or less borne this out, and he invented it in the 1940s, and Crowley had documented his life well enough that it would be super strange to have left out any reference to being a member of a Wiccan cult yeah, yeah, in that's his early wild. years. That's, that's a stretch. The fact that Crowley never mentioned it in his diary... Uh, that pretty much proves that this never happened, that Gardner probably made it up. Okay. But as far as Crowley's legacy, it seems clear that Crowley's practice had a powerful influence on Wicca as Gardner developed it. In a manuscript used for Wiccan ritual, Ye Book of Ye Art Magical... <laughs> Have that one on my shelf. Hundred, do you really? No. Okay. <laughs> Hundreds of pages of ritual were lifted from Crowley's works, like straight plagiarized. Hmm. Crowley's influence is evident in formulas for ritual purification, the incorporation of sex magic, and the language used during rituals. Doreen Valiente uh, confronted Gardner about his use of Crowley, which she recognized. She was like, hey, didn't, this, didn't you just take this from Crowley's books? A thorough biography of Crowley by his literary executor, John Simons, had reminded the public of Crowley's significance as a magician, but also of his depravity and vice. Valiente read the book and was nervous about incorporating so much of Crowley into Wicca. Gardner admitted that the rituals he'd received from his pagan sources with the family tradition were fragmentary and needed some brushing up, and as a member of Crowley's OTO, he felt like it was okay to borrow liberally from Crowley's stuff. Of course. That's what they all say. Sounds fake. <laughs> uh, Valiente considered Crowley a nasty piece of work and with Gardner's permission set about cutting his influence out of the rituals this work of cutting Crowley out actually opened the door for Valiente's voice to come into the Wiccan rituals the only major female voice in the rituals designed to revolve around a priestess ironically mm. for his part Gardner disavowed Crowley and may have as part of his disavow made up the stories about Crowley's attitude toward Wicca so it's okay Olivia could I know. be imagined. I still have faith. But the truth of the matter is, Crowley's influence on Wicca was profound, not only by opening the door for Valiente to make her own contribution, but as we've seen, sex magic and all these sorts of things um, lingered in Wicca, even with Crowley being sort of pulled out. Okay, so that's Wicca. Number two of three religions, and the third one's Thelema. We're going to talk about it for a hot second, because we've pretty much already yeah. laid out Crowley and Thelema. The next question is an American one. Did Crowley inspire L. Ron Hubbard, at least in, in part, uh, in his founding of the Church of Scientology? Yeah. This is a cagey question and involves a really neat story. Uh, in addition to Crowley being circumspect about the aspects of his occult career, Hubbard had a habit of making things up, just straight making things up. Please don't come kill us Scientologists or attack us with your thetans. I'll be ready. Please. <laughs> Okay, Brianna's got us. She's going to protect us. I really mm -hmm. don't want to be audited. Not okay. today. Don't come audit us. Don't try to audit. I think we can say no. Just say no. I don't know. Including, okay, so Hubbard had a habit of making things up, uh, including most of his official biography as promoted by the church. 
the connection between they're just gonna label us label us like subversive persons after this or something. <laughs> if they okay. try to come for us, see what happens. The, oh. We're gonna get gang stuff. I am not associated with Brianna literal. <laughs> the connection between Crowley and Hubbard begins with yet an- another occult experimentalist, Jack Parsons. He's a fascinating guy. He was an accomplished engineer who actually helped to found the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at NASA. Have we talked about him? We haven't. This is our first time bringing him up. He's also the head of the Agape Lodge of the Ordo Templi Orientis in Los Angeles. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, And had trained with Crowley personally. So one of the founders of NASA was a Crowley acolyte. You know... Parsons had been engaged in a series of occult rites that he called the Babylon Working, which started in 1946. For Crowley, Babylon is both Earth Mother and Scarlet Woman. Parsons' goal was to incarnate Babylon in what he called a moon child, as foretold by Crowley. A red-headed woman named Marjorie Cameron joined him for this ritual, um, and so did Hubbard, having demonstrated a gift for astral vision to Parsons. He was asked to serve as the scribe for this invocation of the moon child. Uh, Hubbard ended up being the voice of Babylon, speaking as the otherworldly entity throughout Parsons' experiments. Hubbard and Parsons created a business together, along with Parsons' sister-in-law and his girlfriend, Betty, to sail yachts from the East Coast to California to sell. Parsons put in over $20,000, most of his life savings, and Hubbard put in a grand. Sounds like Hubbard. Yeah. <laughs> Hubbard and Betty attempted to betray Parsons and escape together on a yacht. This is so cool. But Parsons invoked the god Mars. And true story, a squall rose up on the sea and forced them back to the shore. Parsons must have felt so good that day. Oh, yeah. That was... Really? <laughs> like, he was like... That was a high point, for sure. Yes. Yeah, he slept well that night. Yeah. Mars is on my side. (laughs) The the Church of Scientology claims that the Babylon working did not take place, and that Hubbard was involved, but that he was a spy sent by the government to infiltrate and disband Parsons' black magic enterprise, and that Hubbard actually had rescued Betty from Parsons' left-handed clutches. Why? 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 Okay, so here's the thing now. So this is Crowley. So we can see just through this super cool story that Hubbard and Parsons and Crowley are all sort of intertwined. Crowley's inspiration pops up in Hubbard's work in a number of ways. Hubbard practiced a series of affirmations, now kept secret, that involved invoking a guardian angel, much like Crowley's I was. Hubbard also appears to have practiced a blood rite involving invocations to the Egyptian goddess Ah Hathor. Not Ahathor, that was me being like, aha, Hathor. Yeah, yeah, Egyptian right. goddess. Yeah, no, we got aha, it. cool, all right. As well as Nuit, Ray, Mammon, and Osiris. Mm. So it should sound like familiar names. Hubbard mentioned Crowley twice in his known Scientology lectures, calling him his very good friend, though Hubbard never met him. <gasps> Crowley, who was nearing the end of his life, was not so thrilled with Hubbard and Parsons' experiments, writing to a friend, I get fairly frantic when I contemplate the idiocy of these goats. That's the best thing I've ever heard. Hubbard taught the liberation of the thetan, or spirit, in order to realize one's full potential, which includes seeing through walls and repairing coffee makers through the power of your mind. Join the Church of Scientology. Or don't. <laughs> now I'm going to use goats as an insult. This... Yes, you goats. You goats. No, isn't it a compliment, though? Like, 
No, because the, the goats yeah, were, were on the wrong side. No, but like, like, no, like in like, not yeah. the goats. No, it doesn't represent like greatest of all time. <laughs> That's why you can't be left-handed, because the goats were on the left and yeah. the Bible and the sheep were on the right. Yeah, I'm just saying, there's some slang <laughs> out there where goats is a, a compliment. Totes my goats. That too. I, I don't know if it's goats. <laughs> I'm hip with the kids. And I know what the kids is saying. Please continue. I guess I'm you. not then, because... <laughs> All right, so the point I'm trying to make here with the Thetan and the repairing coffee makers is that this is a lot like Crowley's uh, dictum that every man and woman is a star. What he means by that is that we all have these spirits that we can liberate and become powerful occult beings. Hubbard also promoted astral projection, which he called exteriorization. He instructed his students to send their Thetans on grand tours of the universe, which they achieved by which they achieved by projecting the thetan out of their bodies. That's not how that works. Are you in Scientology? <laughs> That's how it works for them. <laughs> not for you. Do you have thetans? Are you familiar with the practice? But the whole notion of projection, what I'm trying to get at here, Brianna, is that it's pretty Crowley. Like yeah, he's influenced like, this. It's not. All right, and that's Scientology. We close the door on them now that we're all subversive. <laughs> people in the eyes of the church of scientology finally crowley created his own religion thelema philema i don't really know how to which that was the right way it's basically philema is it philema that's what i, I think, feel yeah. like i've heard the most okay. at least we'll go with that then we'll give you the pronunciation on this one yikes <laughs> uh it's basically a spiritual and philosophical system that takes the book of the law as either the central religious tenant or one of the central tenets of the practice organizations that are considered thelemites include crowley's own silver star the typhonian order the open source order of the golden dawn sort of like revival movement the illuminates of thanateros these are all such wow. cool names and the temple of set ah mm. The Temple of Set will be surfacing in a series of episodes. Uh, we're going to do a double episode on Satanism. I'm so excited! Same. But before we do that, we are going to take a detour with the Nazis. I'm so ready. Also ready. So, so ready. Let's close up. Out my ass. It's great. Let's <laughs> close up Crowley so we can get on to the Nazis. The Nazis. The Nazis. The Nazis and their occultism. And reptilians. Oh, man. Yes. The Spear of Destiny and the Aryan Race. Tiger. Close up this Crowley episode. We hereby adjourn. Or I hereby. God. Yeah, do it on your own, man. Leave I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors until such a time as we get together and do it again. Right, so the end of our Black Magic series is going to go a little something like this. Next episode will be the Nazi occult. And then we're going to be covering uh, the Church of Satan and Satanism and satanic the Satanic Panic in the Ooh. 80s and the 90s and Legends of Satanism. And then we're going to uh, close up with uh, satanic murder cults. Na, 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 yeah. It's like Halloween just keeps continuing. Yes. Yeah, we've, we're going to stretch Halloween into, uh, I think, February. Almost Good. February. Yeah. That's, that's, that's all I've wanted. For us. At um, least past the new year, I think we're going to make skip it. Skip Christmas. And uh, 
So uh, the podcast actually started on Valentine's Day. Um, we, we, our first episode said uh, we used the college's equipment, and they sounded horrible. So we went back and ended up having to redo them. So we, we had to relaunch after Valentine's Day. But my goal was to get a full season in by Valentine's Day. So I think I think we're on target here. We're gonna Aww. we're gonna make that happen. All right. So uh, the voices that we heard today, we had Brandon Walls and uh, closing up the the Crowley performance for our second episode was Jacob Wheatley still sitting here so he can say goodbye to you all as Crowley. Okay. Oh, that killed him. He couldn't do it. He just, I was going to make something so... like a sexual comment. Oh, go ahead, Chai. Like, just do that. that still be like... Crowley? Yeah, it's pretty Crowley. That's a pretty yeah. Crowley thing to do. Go ahead. Seduce, the, seduce our lovely listeners. For anyone listening, you can call me at... 1-800-POWER-BOTTOM. <laughs> You're playing Crowley. Oh, whoops. Yes. <laughs> yes. Your main power bottom is in the vicinity of this this college. This college on the eastern shore of Maryland. Mm-hmm. Come yeah. looking for me. Please don't come find us. No, don't please don't come find oh, us. The power bottom this. is in the cornfield. We don't want a line of people You're seeking power bottoms. Cornfield. I will protect you. Practicing. <laughs> Our brief history was brought to us by uh, John Cook today. Enjoy your mescaline. Please don't. Don't. Don't enjoy that. Be <laughs> careful. <laughs> this, this, this episode is going to get us in so much trouble. Because uh, it's Crowley. We had Crowley? our uh, human of the metal, Brianna Litterall. Metal yeah. Metal detector. Uh, we had our uh, Instaquisitor, Shannon Landers. Good day. Good day. Yeah. Good Tips day. her hat. I say so good day. so classy, I'm yeah. yeah. oh, oh, I see. Very genteel. And uh, Olivia Litterall, our grandmaster. I'm here, and I'm excited for Satan. <laughs> She's literally wearing a sweater, a Christmas sweater, that says Parade Satan on it. And it's, it's got like... Baphomet holding a cat. Yeah. Yes. What I'll else would you be doing? Instagram, so check yeah, it out. You got your Christmas sweater out early. So, uh... I want to encourage, yes, encourage you to subscribe to our podcast. If you haven't yet, it was so much fun to come. So go ahead and subscribe and go on, visit us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, like and friend us. Uh, and if you're feeling inclined, as we've mentioned too many times, you can contribute on Patreon. Just a buck a month really goes far to making us feel like we, you love us. Well, I mean, we know we lo- that you love us even without money. We do. But it helps. It does. <laughs> My name is Rob Thompson. I am the Supreme Hierophant here at the old Secret Order of Alchemical Actors Theater. And I will see you all next time for Nazis. Nazis! Ooh. Yeah. <laughs>